All right, well, you can uh, grab your Bibles if you have them with you, and I hope you do. Um, And we're going to be in Matthew chapter 11 again. Uh, And I'm going to read verses 20 through 24. Matthew 11, 20 through 24. The Word of God reads, Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. This is the Word of God. You guys can have a seat. So last week, we looked at um, Jesus as He turns on the uh, offensive towards those who were questioning John the Baptist and ultimately those who would also reject Him as the Messiah, and I kind of unpacked that passage, but then what I did at the end was I took the two extremes that are laid out in the passage, John being at one extreme, Jesus being at the other extreme, and how those in Jesus' day rejected both. I took that idea and I kind of pulled out of it two extremes that we all fall into, the extreme of legalism and antinomianism and how we and I showed how we all tend to lean towards one of either extreme if not both um, at various times and showed how the proper center of that will will is what we we should be working for a proper balance of law and gospel of understanding that there is grace and there is freedom, while at the same time there is a standard of holiness that God expects for His people to live by, and that when we cherish the law properly, we will be satisfied in Jesus because He came to fulfill the law. And He um, showed us what that looks like. And if we cherish grace properly, again, we will be satisfied in Jesus because it is His grace that is offered to us when we fall short of the law. But the, the... the antinomian or anti-law side is, is what I want to use to kind of lead into today's passage. Antinomianism, like I said last week, is anti-lawism. That word nomos, uh, like Deuteronomy, is deuteronomos, the second law. Anti-nomos is anti-law. It's those who would say that because we're Christians or because we live in, a, in the new covenant system after the death of Christ, that now we're only under grace and that we really don't need to aspire to any special level of morality other than what the culture deems as just normal, um, civil morality. And anybody who would say, actually, there is a standard, well, that's a legalist. You're just being legalistic. When Scripture teaches that as Christians there is absolutely a standard of holiness that we should aspire to. Not to make God love us more, but because we love God that much more and we're grateful for what He's done for us and because His Holy Spirit dwells inside of us and empowers us to do that. But the antinomian will say that God's love is for all people and it's the same for all people with no condition. Now, in one way, that's sort of correct. There is a benevolent love of God in which all people receive an amount of goodwill from God. We we read in Matthew chapter 5 that He makes His 
rain fall on the just and the unjust, and His sun shines on the just and the unjust. But there is also a, a way, what's, what's called in theology, the love of complacency that God has where, where He actually um, delights in a person. And that type of love is absolutely founded on a condition. And that is the condition that Christ met in fulfilling the law and then absorbing God's wrath against His people on the cross. And those who are in Christ, because that condition has been met, God delights in us. But the antinomian doesn't recognize that distinction. They say God loves all people the same no matter what, which is never explained in Scripture. And so, they will come to Jesus, and they see Jesus as calm, collected, passive, non-confrontational, non-judgmental, kind of like this grandfather or, or uncle type figure who sits on rocks and hangs out in fields and, and just wants people to come and grab hugs and, and just say positive, kind things to them. And well, the problem is it doesn't seem like they've read the passage that we read this morning in Revelation 19 where Jesus will come again in judgment and in wrath against those who have rejected Him. But these people would separate the God from the Old Testament or the God of the Old Testament from Jesus in the New Testament. And so when they read in the Old Testament how God will commission His people to go into a village or a city and destroy everything, man, woman, child, animal, everything, level it, they would see that God as different than Jesus who comes and teaches and, and is usually relatively calm. And we have to be clear on what the Bible teaches and what we believe is that Yahweh of the Old Testament is the Jesus of the New Testament. Jesus is Yahweh in human form. There's, there's no distinction other than within the, the Trinity and the, and the Father-Son distinction, but He's the same God. Jesus is that God. And like I said, when you continue to read to the end of the book, you get to Revelation, you find out Jesus carries out that same judgment that God in the Old Testament had carried out uh, on those nations who were rebellious and, and needed to be judged. So Jesus is the full embodiment of Yahweh Sabaoth, or the, the commander of the armies of the Lord, the Lord of hosts. He's the same, same man, or, or same, same God in human flesh as a man. And so we come to this passage today, and we're going to see a little bit of that judgment of Jesus coming out. So He's going to go on the offensive, or He's continued to go on the offensive. We saw... In verses 7 through 15, he just kind of defends John. And we know that from Luke's Gospel that the Pharisees and the lawyers and more than likely the scribes were, were not having what John had been teaching. They were not having what Jesus was teaching uh, more than likely because of John's position in prison at this point. They were questioning John's validity as a man of God. And so Jesus defends John. And as we've watched him defend from 7 to 15, and then in 16 through 19, he kind of goes from defense mode to sort of offensive mode and calls them out on their real heart problem, which we saw last week. The issue was not that John's question actually caused uh, some questioning. The issue was that they were sinful, that their hearts were in rebellion, and they had just already made up their mind that no matter the man, no matter the lifestyle they're not going to accept it. They are going to reject it. They're like children who are just not going to be satisfied no matter what. And so tension is kind of building. Um, and, and we'll see it culminates and comes to a climax in today's passage, 20 through 24. The tension has been built and Jesus begins speaking in a way that the antinomian doesn't like. Those who see Jesus as just a, a kind, um, a positive uh, person they don't like this kind of stuff because Jesus not only goes on the offensive, He actually becomes offensive Himself. He is out to offend those that He is addressing. So look with me at verse 20 and, and we'll just uh, expound on these verses here. Verse 20 is 
Matthew, just kind of giving a little bit of a, a narrative explanation as to what's about to happen. And he says, Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. In this situation, we can almost picture Jesus is talking to crowds, but now it's almost as if He begins to talk to Himself um, while at the same time addressing large multitudes of people in different geographic regions who were not literally present. He's just addressing them but almost like he's speaking to himself, but he's doing it in such a way that everyone around him can hear what he's saying. And so he says, or Matthew says, he begins to denounce. Now that word means to reproach or to blame or to curse, to scold, to insult, to revile, to find fault with them. He's doing this publicly. He's finding fault or cursing these cities. And the ironic thing is, is he says, where most of his mighty works had been done. That's his miracles, his signs, and his wonders. Most of the miraculous deeds that he, that he had performed were done in these specific cities. And the people who lived there were able to see with their own eyes everything that he was doing healing the lepers, giving the Blind sight, giving hearing to the deaf, making the lame walk, raising the dead, all of those things that he had been doing, the people of these cities were eyewitnesses to his majesty, his power as God. So Jesus is denouncing those very cities. He's finding fault in the ones who had had the most exposure to his ministry and his miracles or as Matthew would call him at the beginning of the chapter, the deeds of the Messiah, the Messianic deeds. So he's denouncing these cities where most of his mighty works had been done, and then he says, because. Now that's always important when you see the word because. That's, that's a big hint. You're getting a lot of information here. Because, here's the reason, the purpose, the motivation behind Jesus going on the offense against these cities, was it maybe because they had been, um, they, they just wouldn't pay attention to what he was saying and so he's denouncing them? Or was it because maybe they had gotten violent and ran him out of town? Or maybe they had just been very, very obstinate in, in, in stiff arming him and wouldn't allow him to say uh, anything or, or to teach as he wanted to teach or to perform miracles? Well, that's not what it says. It says simply, he's denouncing them because they did not repent. One reason. They did not repent of their sin. Repentance, as we know or we should know, very simply, is a change of the mind. And we'll go into a little more detail on repentance at the end. But this is simply a change of the mind about sin. Notice it doesn't say that He denounces these cities because they wouldn't listen to His teachings. They walked away when He began to speak. It doesn't say He began to denounce these cities because well, they wouldn't watch His miracles. He was trying to get their attention and they just wouldn't pay attention. Now, that's not what happened. They were, they were there and they saw all that He had performed. It's not because they weren't impressed with His miracles. We read over and over in the Gospels how the people would follow Him just to see miracles. And they would ask for more miracles, and that was typically how Jesus knew that their hearts were in the wrong place. He doesn't denounce them because they just didn't realize that they were sinful. Or because they just didn't realize that they were wrong in their understanding of God. Or He doesn't denounce them because, well, they just didn't feel bad about their sin. He says He denounced them because they did not repent. Jesus is rebuking them. He's giving them this scathing rebuke against these cities because they did not repent. One reason, they would not change their mind about sin. Well, then that kind of uh, brings us to the question, well, why would they need to change their minds? Why does anybody need to change their mind about sin? If repentance, or, or I should say, since repentance is such a massive theme in all of Scripture... 
Why is it that we or these people need to repent? Why do we need to have a change of mind? Romans 8, 7 and 8 says that the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Notice this, indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. We've all had those situations where we ask somebody, in case asks me, hey, can I do this? I'm saying, I'm sure you can. But the question is, may I? That, that brings in this idea of possibility. When somebody says, can I? That means it, it, literally, is it possible for me to do this? Not may I or do I have permission? So when this says that the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot, it is not able does not have the ability to submit to the law of God. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. They don't have the ability to please God. That's why we need, that's why these people needed a change of mind. And Jesus says, He's denouncing them, or Matthew says Jesus is denouncing them because they did not repent. They did not have this change of mind. Change of mind is absolutely necessary to submit to God, to please God, to stop being hostile to God. You understand that hostile is different than just uh, turning your back. Hostile is staying broad shoulders against something. That's hostile. And that's how we are in our flesh towards God. And that's why repentance is so important. That's why a change of the mind is necessary. And Paul would go on in Romans 12 to say, you need to be, therefore, transformed by the renewing of your mind. You have to have a new mindset. You have to think differently. So that's Matthew setting up this scene. And in verse 21, Jesus begins the rebuke. And He says, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! Now I want to stop right there because I want to explain what he's saying. Because we don't use the word woe anymore. This is not something that's typical of, uh, of current language. The word woe, if you know what onomatopoeia is, it's like when a word is actually a sound like buzz or boom or pow. It's a word that is actually a sound at the same time. Woe is the same way. It's an onomatopoetic word. It is a word that means a sound. And the word here literally is, and I'll read just some, some quotes from different commentators, how they describe what it means when a woe is pronounced. It says, this is a warning of impending disaster to the hearers. So disaster is coming. It's a, it's a woe. Disaster is coming. It is an expression of pain and pity for the misfortune that awaits someone in a certain condition. Often, again, an announcement of disaster to come. To pronounce a woe is to warn of danger and the nearness of judgment. So to say woe is to say, look out, judgment is coming. Disaster is headed your way. That's what he means when he says woe. Uh, another very popular passage of Scripture comes from uh, the book of Isaiah chapter 6. And I'm going to read this. The call of Isaiah in chapter 6, uh, beginning in verse 1, he says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of His robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of Him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And this is Isaiah's response. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. 
for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. In the Gospel of John, we find out that Isaiah actually saw Jesus. And he has this vision of Jesus. And this is Isaiah, probably the holiest man in Israel, has this vision of Jesus. Here's the seraphim calling back and forth, volleying, holy, holy, holy. The threshold, the foundation shakes. And the first thing he thinks is, woe is me. I'm warning myself of doom. Judgment is coming on me because I'm a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. And I've seen the King, the Lord of hosts. It, this is not a good situation for me because I am not holy and He is holy, holy, holy. That's another use of this, this woe. And Jesus is pronouncing this same sort of warning on these cities. He mentions Chorazin and Bethsaida. These cities were in the Galilean region where Jesus had been doing most of His travels, most of His uh, mighty deeds or mighty works, it says. And so He's, he's warning them. They, they're not here. Maybe some of the people have traveled and they're there, but He's kind of speaking these woes over these general regions and the people there, and He's warning them of the dreadful curses and impending doom. Doom is coming. Judgment is coming. Warning. It's coming. And He says, for... The next sentence, what do you Chorazin? What do you Bethsaida for? Or the reason why I'm pronouncing this judgment and pronouncing this doom is if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Now before we get to the, 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 the words here, just think about what he's saying. Think about the phrase that Jesus just used to describe the reason why He's pronouncing the woe. He says, if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. In other words, if I would have gone there, they would have repented, but I didn't go there, I came to you. I know that they would have repented. They would be saved if I would have gone there. But I didn't go there. Therefore, they are not. And I came to you. This would have been shocking to these people to hear, not only because of that phrasing, but because of what they knew of Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon, historically, all the way back into the Old Testament, and there are many passages that address, address these cities, but Tyre and Sidon were two cities along the Mediterranean Sea that were known for their lavish luxury and wealth and, and just predominance in, in shipping and trade and people were wealthy and they were sinful. They were idolatrous. They were grossly wicked. Tyre was known as recklessly wealthy and self-centered, just consumed with the glory that she had as a city of wealth and, and, and prospering. The Sidonians were early oppressors of the Israelites, of the Jewish people. And Jesus says, those two cities would have, repent, would have repented if I went there. In other words, even the wicked cities that you know of Tyre and Sidon, that you've been reading about in your Scriptures, even those wicked, recklessly idolatrous cities would have repented if I would have gone there because my works, my deeds were just that obvious. They would have repented. But notice, this is not just normal repentance. He says, they would have repented long ago and in sackcloth and ashes. So first of all, there would have been no time wasted in Tyre and Sidon. It would have just been, boom, miraculous deeds and repentance and, and preaching the gospel and repentance. They would have fallen on their faces before Jesus if He would have gone there. No procrastination, just, just running in repentance. And not only that, no time would have been wasted, but they would have repented, it says, in sackcloth and ashes. And this was just a, a symbolic way of showing your brokenness and contrition over sin. In the Old Testament, we read stories of, of men who were brought to a place where they rip off their 
comfortable clothes and they put on sackcloth, itchy, disgusting, uncomfortable clothes. And they plop down in the dirt and they rub ashes in their hair and they just sit there and mourn their wicked, evil state before God. They rid themselves of all comfort and just make themselves like the worms in the dirt that they are. Tyre and Sidon would have repented like that if I would have went there, but I didn't go there. That's what Jesus is saying. These cities, Chorazin and Bethsaida, had been blessed with messianic works, which had they been performed elsewhere, even in disgusting, wicked cities, they would have called people to repentance. They would have turned hearts toward Jesus. They were just that obvious. And yet, these people would not repent. How wicked of a heart does a person have to have to be there to eyewitness the glory of Jesus in miracles, in preaching and teaching, in signs and wonders, and to still say, no, I'm not going to have you. I'm going to hold on to my sin. That's what these people had done. And so Jesus is pronouncing the woe on them. In verse 22, He says, But I tell you it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. So when He uses the word but, we know He's contrasting something. He's contrasting the hypothetical repentance of Tyre and Sidon and the benefit that would have come along with that with the obvious rejection and sinfulness of Chorazin and Bethsaida. In other words, but as for you, they would have repented. You didn't. So as for you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. Now this brings back into our minds, or it should, what we read and studied in chapter 10, verses 14 and 15. As He was sending out His disciples, He said, If anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. And what we studied there, and I won't go into too much detail just uh, right now, what we studied there was that there are absolutely levels of punishment. And there are levels of blessing. And, we see in verse 22 here, there is also a day of judgment coming. So Jesus says, Tyre and Sidon, those cities that you look down upon because of their wicked, gross, pagan idolatry and licentiousness and sensuality, those, those people that you won't go around because they're so sinful, those people would have repented. But because you won't repent, it will be worse for you on the day of judgment than for them. They're going to have it easier. When, when, the, when the punishment is, is divvied out and people receive their eternal rewards or eternal curses, it's going to be worse for you because you saw all, this good, all the good works, all the, the teachings, you received all these benefits and you still, in your wickedness, refused to repent. And then in verse 23, he turns to Capernaum. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? I'm going to stop right there. We talked about Capernaum a little bit, another Galilean city. The special thing about Capernaum was that this is where Jesus considered His home, the, 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 the headquarters of His ministry. So Capernaum is the city where Jesus lived. Remember, He healed Peter's mother-in-law. And then later that evening, he went on this sort of healing spree. It says he healed all who were sick in the city and cast out demons. They had received many benefits and had seen much of his work. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? In other words, will you be venerated and exalted up? And will people look at you as this great and mighty city? Think about it. Jesus lived there. In this city, when I think of places that would be amazing to go, I think, first of all, the Holy Land would be awesome. But I also think of, of great cities from history where I could point out different places where, 
where people did things. I think of Geneva and, and, and Edinburgh, Scotland and, and the grave of, of Spurgeon and, and all these different places where it would be great to go and just say, man, this, people stood here and they, they actually were here and they spoke and it would be great to be consumed in that thought of being where those great men of God were. This is the place where Jesus lived. Like somebody could be walking down the street and just point and say, oh yeah, Jesus of Nazareth, there He is. He's over there buying bread at the market. He's, he's buying fish. He's, he's teaching some kids over there. This is where He lived. Will you be exalted? Will you be venerated to heaven? This is almost heavenly to think about the Son of God living in this city. Will you be exalted to heaven? It's a rhetorical question implying a negative answer. No. No you will be brought down to Hades. Hades, of course, is the abode of the dead. In most instances, we could substitute hell, although not always. most instances, depending on the context, we could just say hell. Will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to hell. Rather than being lifted up, you will be brought down. And notice that Capernaum is passive. This city... From, from outsiders looking in, could have been lifted up and venerated. But no, you will be from the outside brought down and taken down to hell. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. Again, the reason being, the reason that this woe is coming on you is because I've done the works in you, and if they would have been done in another place, it would have been to their benefit, but for you it was to your demise. Now we know Sodom. In the Old Testament, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah were leveled, flat, destroyed by fire and brimstone raining down from heaven. In Genesis 13, 13, it says, Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. In Ezekiel 16, verses 49 and 50, it says, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. We remember Sodom and Gomorrah, they were known in the area for their wickedness and in, in homosexuality. The, the angels of God went into the city and the men of the city said, bring them out that we may sleep with them. They were fully prepared to rape angels. Wicked, wicked people. Just living in constant sensuality. And Jesus said, if I would have went there, they'd still be here. The cities would still be there if I would have gone there. But I didn't. Go there. I came to you. The works that I've done in Capernaum, Sodom would have seen that stuff and they would have fallen on their faces. But I didn't go there. I came to you and you still refuse to repent. Verse 24, But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Again, he's contrasting the hypothetical repentance of Sodom and what would have been to their benefit to the reality of the um, rejection and the unrepentance of Capernaum. It will be more tolerable on the day of judgment. Those Sodomites, they are in hell. They will be brought back out to be judged. And on that day when they're judged, it will actually be better for them than for the people who lived in Capernaum where Jesus lived and still refused to repent of their sin. So, when we read this a passage like this, the language is hard. It's hard for us to kind of get a grasp on Jesus pronouncing a woe when we don't pronounce woes. And, and it's hard for us to kind of feel the, the weight of what's being said here. But this is one of the most severe, grave 
passages in all of Scripture, when Jesus steps up to verbally denounce and pronounce a woe, this is and should be heart-wrenching and terrifying as we read this. And I know that's difficult for, for the reader. But what can, we, what can we glean from this? What can we get out of this? I've got four things, uh, four takeaways from this passage that I think are important. Um, first of all, gospel graces are often given to certain places and not others. Gospel graces are often given to certain places and not others. This is exactly what we studied in chapter 10, uh, verses 34 through 36. We, we spoke of Jesus wielding the sword of division. And He will divide the earth. And He will divide nations. And He will divide people groups. And He will divide families. And He will divide marriages. And He will divide individual people as He circumcises the heart and is split between the flesh and the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And we said, and we looked at throughout history, that there have been moves of grace that God has brought to a place and there's great revival, and then it's snuffed out, it's done, and you, they, that place never flourishes again, while then another place pops up, and revival breaks out, and it flourishes, and then it stops. And there's no more. And we see this again, that God gives these gospel graces to certain places rather than others, and Jesus specifically says, if I would have went to them, they would have repented. This is an assertion. He's not saying, I think I would have had a little better, you know, a little better fruit if I'd have went somewhere else. He says, no, if I would have gone there, they would have repented, but I didn't go there. They didn't even have the option. You had the option. You had the opportunity. I came to you. I did my miracles. I preached my sermons to you. We here are under the umbrella of even if this is the only service you've ever been to, you're under the umbrella of gospel graces, or, or we might call them means of grace. Fellowship of believers, worship through singing, hearing the Word of God read aloud, preached aloud, holding a copy of the Scriptures in your hand. These are means of grace. They are conduit by which the grace of God comes to your heart. Communion, when we partake of the Lord's Supper, that is a way that we actually commune with Jesus. Koinonia, we have fellowship with Jesus through the breaking of the bread. And these means of grace come through the local church. You've received these things, whereas other people in the world will never receive them. And if you remain in your sin, it will be better for those people than it will be for you. It would be better had I never preached a sermon, had you never walked into this door, it would be better for you to have never met a Christian than to meet a Christian, see that grace, hear the Gospel, read the Scriptures, and still remain in your sin. It will be more bearable on Judgment Day for those people who never heard the name of Jesus than for you. And so, you are under the umbrella. Do you recognize this as, as, as Gospel grace? Do you recognize the means of grace? Do you recognize that when the Word is preached, God is just pouring forth Grace. And I'm, I'm, I'm prayerfully um, encouraged by the fact that it is not based on the skill of, or delivery of the preacher. You just get to hear the Word, even if it's just read aloud. Praise God for that grace to hear His Word. That He would condescend to us and reveal Himself to us. Or Christian fellowship. Just the fact that there are two Christians in a place where we can shake hands and say, Good morning, brother. That is grace that some Christians will never experience and some people groups will never see. So recognize those gospel graces. Understand that you're getting something that some people will never get and take advantage of that and hold on to it tight and cling to it and, and get all you can out of it. Second thing is we see the degrees of judgment based on the graces that are made available. Degrees of judgment based on graces that are made available. In verse 22, we see more bearable. In verse 24, we see more tolerable. Again, there are levels of punishment in hell. 
Now, I don't think this is any kind of Dante's Inferno, seven circles of hell, or how many it is. This is just degrees of punishment. Some people will receive more of the wrath of God than others, and that is based on how much grace they received. How obvious was it to you? How many times did you hear the Gospel and you still remained obstinate, and you still refused to come, and you still refused to repent? Jesus is the judge. And of course, judgment is going to be worse for those who heard of His death and heard of His blood and heard of the beatings and the suffering and heard of the resurrection and still said, no, I will not come. It will be worse for those people. We will all be judged. If you are a Christian, there are levels of blessing and honor. We will all be judged according to our deeds. And if your mindset is I'll take the bottom rung as long as I'm not going to heaven. You're not a Christian. You need to be born again. That's not salvation. Just saying, I just don't want to go to hell. We should be working to get up those levels of blessings so that when the blessings are poured out of us on us in Scripture, they're referred to as crowns. When we have our crowns, our, our, our symbols of blessing and honor, we can lavish them back on our King for the mercy that He's given to us. So there are degrees of judgment and there are degrees of blessing. Third, we see the most obvious, or one of the most obvious is just the reality of judgment. He mentions twice the day of judgment. The day of judgment. There is judgment coming on all people everywhere. There will be a day of judgment when we all stand before God and we are judged. We are looked at according to our deeds. Now society would love to think that there is no judgment. We just live and live and live and do whatever we want and there's no accountability. We're not accountable to anyone because there is no God. And there are even Christians who believe this. There is no judgment. The Bible teaches very clearly there is a day of judgment coming. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 11, it says, Then I saw a great white throne, and Him who was seated on it. From His presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death. The lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Judgment is coming. There is coming a day when we will all stand before the throne of God and be judged according to every deed we have ever done. If you're a Christian, you will stand there clothed in the righteousness of Christ and every deed will be judged as forgiven and paid for, and you will be redeemed, but you will be judged according to your deeds. And then from your salvation, what you did with the Word that you had been given. So are you prepared for that judgment day? And then that leads to the final point, and that is the necessity of repentance. The necessity of repentance. Remember, back to verse 20, the motivation for these rebukes was the people's failure to repent. It wasn't anything else. It was their failure to repent. It wasn't the fact that they were physically hostile or, or belligerent or negative. They just didn't repent. So we need to understand what repentance is and what repentance is not. Because it is necessary. Repentance is not knowing that you sinned. The devil knows that he's a sinner. Demons know that they are sinful. That's not surprising. Repentance is not 
feeling sorry for your sin. Judas felt sorry for his sin. He went out and hung himself and he's in hell today. That's not repentance. Repentance is not regretting your sin. How many men have run off with some woman only years, months later to regret what they've done to realize they made a stupid mistake? That's not repentance. That's just realizing you acted like an idiot. That's human common sense. It's not repentance. And repentance is also not confessing your sin to God. Telling God, I have sinned. That's not repentance. Repentance, like I said at the beginning, is a change of the mind. It is a change of your affections and your emotions as they pertain to sin. It is a change in the way you think about sin. It's turning your back on sin. It's hating sin. It's it's seeking with a strong passion and desire to mortify or kill your sin. Put it to death because you hate it. That is repentance. Repentance is necessary. Absolutely necessary for salvation. Is it a prerequisite for salvation? No. But it is absolutely necessary. Without repentance, there is no salvation. In true salvation, there is always repentance. In Acts 17.30, we read, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. Without true repentance, a change of the mind and the affections and the desires and the will about sin and concerning sin, no matter what you think about God, no matter what you think about Jesus or heaven or hell or how warm it makes you feel to think of Jesus, it does not matter apart from repentance because repentance is absolutely necessary for true salvation. Repentance happens in a moment of time. There will, if you are a Christian, there will have been a moment in time when a change took place. Does everybody know when that moment was? No. Can you say the time and the date? Maybe not. Do you have it written in the front of your Bible so that you can tell Satan when he challenges you? No, that may not be the case, but the truth of the matter is, for a Christian, there's always a moment in time when a change takes place and you are converted and repentance takes place, your heart changes. Your mind and your attitude changed towards sin. The question there is, is that that true of you? Is that the case? Has there been a moment in time when you felt the grotesque horror of your sin and you realize that if I stay in my sin like this, I stand in opposition To God the Almighty. The battle line is drawn. I'm on one side, hostile to God, shoulders squared against God, and He is on the other side, hostile toward me. That is necessary. Do you realize that? And then has there been a time when you realized that without a divine intervention, you will remain in that state? That God must do something in your heart or you will head for eternal hell And then the last step is, has there been a time when the Holy Spirit of God came inside of your soul and like Ezekiel says, took out your heart of stone and implanted a heart of flesh that now beats for God and a heart that hates sin and and wants to put to death sin. And therefore, you want to see sin annihilated from your life. You want to see sin gotten rid of. You love, I forget the name of the song that says that we will be saved to sin no more. And you just think that there will come a day when I don't sin anymore. I don't, I don't even, the mind that I behold God with and the heart that I love Jesus with will no longer be tainted with sin. I will be able to love Him in a way that is honorable. Do you think that way? It happens in a moment. But then it also leads to a lifestyle. It's not just something that happens in a moment and then you're done. It's a lifestyle. It characterizes your life. So do you desire to be in a constant state of repentance? 
constantly wanting to get rid of sin in your life because you hate sin, because you realize your sin is what put Christ on the cross, because you realize that your sin is offensive to God. And when you sin, it is an attempt to usurp His throne. And so you want to get rid of it. It's a lifestyle. If that's not the case, those questions, the answer, your answer would be no. Then today needs to be the day, the moment where repentance begins and begins to characterize a lifestyle of repentance. But you have to understand, again, your need of salvation, that sin is an offense to God. He hates it. And He, he must punish it because He's good, but he, has to, but, he, but he also loves you and He also has sent His Son Jesus to die on the cross to absorb the wrath of sin against uh, sinners. See, sin, when we are sinful, it encapsulates all of us, and it also encapsulates all that is in opposition to God. So if we are in sin, we are in opposition to God. We, the individual, is in opposition to God. See, people love to say God hates the sin, but loves the sinner. And that may be true in a, in a sense, but He doesn't just send sin to hell. He sends the sinner to hell. And so you have to understand that as an individual, you're a sinner, and that you need a Savior. And the good news is Jesus Christ has died on the cross. He's taken away the punishment, but you must trust in Him. You must receive Him. You must put your faith in in Christ and seek forgiveness. Earlier I read from Acts 17, verse 30. I'm going to read 30 again and include in it verse 31. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. See, Jesus not only died for sin, but then He came back from the dead. And what that showed is that the work is done. There's nothing else to be completed. The work for your salvation is finished. You must simply trust in that salvation to be saved. And that will bring about repentance. Scripture is clear, and we'll probably address it next week. Repentance is a gift. You can't muster it up. It is a gift. So let's close in prayer. Father, we, we do thank You for Your Word.